The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. So good morning, everyone. It's uh, once again a, um, a privilege to be able to uh, be here and speak to you this morning. I hope, well, I guess it's my hope that by the end of our time of delving into the Word of God, that we will be challenged. Maybe some of us might be chastened, but mostly that we will be encouraged. You see there, I, I couldn't actually think of a title of the sermon, so I stuck a couple of arrows up on a, on a slide. Um, I'll leave it there for the moment. I'm hoping that as I speak, uh, you'll kind of get what it's about. So at the moment, it may be an enigma, but I'm sure, at least no, I hope you'll work it out as we go. It should become pretty obvious. I'm a very simple guy, and a couple of sort of opposite things kind of work for me. So... Can we just pray as we delve into God's word? So, Father, we, we do pray that you might guide us as we think about the sorts of things you might teach us this morning and that we might be encouraged by that. We might be challenged by that. We might even be chastened by that. We just ask that as we leave this morning that we will know that you have been with us and you have spoken to us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. So, I reckon it's pretty likely in the last little while, unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, you will have heard or seen or read the news reports about that uh, trial in China of the Australian writer Yang Hengjun and the verdict that he received, um, death, suspended for two years. Now, Yang Hengjun has already been in prison for five years. It seems likely that during that time he's been mistreated um, and that it seems also to us, perhaps you know, maybe because we're in the West, maybe because we don't necessarily trust a, um, some governments, that his imprisonment and his current verdict are, are more to do with his overt campaigning for democracy than for any accusation of his being a spy. And when we hear such things, you know, the opacity of the Chinese legal system, the, the mistreatment of those in custody, the lack of access to legal and consular support, the secret trial, the thuggish abuse of power, we sit there and we think, you know, this is the way the world is. This is the way the world is. Or, or when a, a 70-year-old woman, Violene White, is murdered by a group of teenage boys in the presence of her six-year-old granddaughter just to steal a car, we see a rash, self-serving abuse of power. And we say, this is just the way the world is. Now, Glennis and I at home have been um, just watching the ABT's, uh, ABC TV series Nemesis. Uh, quite fascinating. It explores the Liberal Party prime ministerships from Tony Abbott through to Scott Morrison. And I'm not trying to be political here. 
but I just found it a really interesting illustration. It becomes all too patently obvious when you hear of the, the behind-the-door deals, the, the number crunching, the maneuvering that politics is too often, too commonly about personal power and position rather than about serving the Australian community. It makes you think, this is just the way the world is. Or perhaps consider the experience of Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, who at 15 years of age was sent to um, Auschwitz-Birkenau and later to Buchenwald. And he recounted his experiences in, the, uh, in a short book called Night. If you haven't read it, you really should. Uh, it's, a, it's disturbing, it's profound, it's worth reading. He wrote in that, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp. That t- night, uh, sorry, that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Is that the biblical kind of language here? Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Elie Wiesel was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. He had survived his experience in the Holocaust. Let me just read you a line from uh, the press release at the time. It says of him, his message is based on his own personal experience of total humiliation and of the utter contempt for humanity shown in Hitler's death camps. This is the way the world is. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's the only way the world is. There is much that is positive and good and beautiful, but it's all too common in this fallen world for relationships at every level, from the individual to the institutional to the international, to be characterized by competition and by power, a quest for dominance, a desire to win. This is not only the way the world is now. It's the way the world has been since the fall. Adam and Eve were given a choice. Trust and obey God, believing he had their best interests in mind by, by virtue of his being their creator, or reject God's rule and, and seek to take his place, to, to choose personal autonomy over submission to the rightful rule of God. And the implications of this sorry tale have infected human relationships both with God and with one another ever since. And what does Cain do? when his offering is deemed less worthy by God than that of his brother Abel. He murders him. He resorts to self-serving abuse of power. A few chapters later, we come across Lamech, 
who seems to make an art out of the abuse of power and thinks somehow that his murderous actions should be accommodated and even praised. All the time of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Another quest for power and a rejection of the authority of God. The state of affairs is summed up in all its harsh reality in Romans chapter 3, where we read, none is righteous. And notice all these verses are drawn uh, drawn from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a pretty miserable picture, isn't it, of the way the world is. There's an alternative. Starting to get the arrows now. There is the way the world should be. The way the world should be governed is by the very nature of its creator. That is by the eternal unchanging being of God who is personal and exists as being in relationship. And it is this other person-centered, Trinitarian God who has made all that is and has made human beings in his image. As his image bearers, we're created as persons and as relational beings just as he is. For us, other person-centered relationship is intended to be primary, just as it is for him. Being in relationship is what he is by nature. It is its very being. If you're going to use a fancy philosophical word, you say it's an ontological statement. It's about his very being. It's who and what he is. It's not an add-on. It's simply what he is. God is complete in and of himself. And this is so because he is essentially one, that is one in essence, existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the nature of this relationship, this this relationship amongst those three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that determines the way the world should be. The way human relationships or human relationship with a personal relationship, uh, relational God and with each other should be. And so it is God who defines what is normative for persons and for relationships. So what is normative is grounded in the relationships that exist among the persons of the Trinity. And that's where we need to look to find out how the world should be and how we should be. And then we're recognized by that contrast how damning it is that we are not. Let me just offer a couple of or a few verses by way of illustration. 
John chapter 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is an other person-centered relationship. This is how this being in relationship works in the Godhead. John chapter 5, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. John chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice in each of these passages we see an other person-centeredness, that each person of the Godhead is concerned for the other, loves the other, the other serves the interests of the other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work this way. This is the nature of their relationship. This is what should be the nature of our relationship as persons created in the image of God. As we look around our room here, we can look around, we see a variety of things. We see a diversity of people. We see males and females, men and women. We see people coming from different ethnic backgrounds. We see people of different ages. In the context of our diversity, we can be one. That's where we can find our unity. That's where we can find and practice other person-centeredness. John chapter 17, the glory that you have given me, and this is Jesus praying to his Father, I have given to them, the disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you and these know you that have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And it's summed up, isn't it, in this one, one short part of a sentence. God is love. God is love. I really like the way Tim Keller puts it when he, uh, in a sermon he preached on Genesis 1, 1 to 3, he wrote, Most religions think of God in a unipersonal way. That is one, one person, not three persons, one person. We find that, for example, in Islam. There is a, an absolute unity in Islam. There are no persons. There's no relationship uh, in, the, in, in eternity. It's not, it's not part of what is ultimate reality. But Christian understanding is very different. We worship a triune God. Being is ultimate reality. Being in relationship is ultimate reality. He goes on, he says, in this way, the essence of God is power. Love comes later if at all. For the Christian, love comes before power. And power is always second. 
if power is ultimate, our culture is right in line with reality. And relationships will be hard and poor. But if not, and I kind of like this, if not, if the Christian way of thinking is right, it will be dashed on the rocks of ultimate reality. Power will be smashed. Christopher Watkins put it this way. He said, for the Christian, bedrock reality is irreducibly personal in a very specific sense. It is absolute, triune, characterized by love. Furthermore, this love itself is given content and definition in the Bible. It is the self-giving love characterized by a fundamental concern for the welfare and good of others communicated in the New, in the New Testament Greek word agape. And that particular word simply means a love that is concerned for the welfare and the well-being of the other. This is the kind of love God has for us. It's the kind of love that took Jesus to the cross. And furthermore, it's summed up in these the two greatest commandments. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what's the greatest, the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus 19, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And on top of that, and yet there's more, on top of that, the virtues which are peculiarly Christian virtues spring from this uh, absolute other person-centeredness. For example, we read in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And as the Lord has forgiven you, so also so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, these are the virtues taught by Jesus and were evident in his life. But they were thought of as weaknesses in the culture of the Roman world in which Jesus lived and spoke and taught. But in that, we see something more. We find in all of this, there is in fact a glimpse of what is to come. So we find that it's just the way the world is. There's kind of the way the world should be, but is not. But there is a glimpse in all of this of what is to be, what is to come. So that the culture in which Jesus was born and in which the church began, that's the Roman Empire, was grounded in power. Potestas. And his principal virtue was gloria. That is the idea of glory for the individual and for, uh, for the state, for the empire, for the emperor. The paterfamilias, the father in a family, was the head of his family in every way possible. He had, in fact, the power of life and death over the members of his family. He could, in fact, kill his wife. He could, in fact, kill his children. Uh, with impunity. Slaves could be and were brutalized without any possibility of redress. People were tortured and killed in the arena for entertainment. 
Gladiators fought each other to the death, the cheers of crowds. Violence and abuse were the norm. And into this comes Jesus, who says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. How can you get more radical than that? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be what? Sons of your Father who is in heaven. These are the traits of the Christian family, us as children of God. And a response on another, another occasion to, Jesus, uh, sorry, to James and John's request to sit at Jesus' right hand, at left hand, in your glory, as they said. Jesus then said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. So here's the arrow going in one direction. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus taught forgiveness and humility and other person-centered love. In the world of first century Rome, this was considered worthy of contempt. It was radically countercultural. Yet Jesus insisted on the primacy of love. It's evident then that the way the way we, as the people of God, the church, love one another is both an emulating of the life of Christ and a foreshadowing, a glimpse of the life to come. 1 John 4, we read, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Then verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, like a sacrifice, uh, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, this way of living is a witness to the world that we are Jesus' people. So that way of living is a witness to the world that we are a redeemed people of God. John 13 confirms this. When he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to, that's says are to, not have the choice, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is a witness to the world when we love one another. And it's a hint of what is to come. We live in a, 
a world now where there is conflict and strife and, and sometimes it, it, it rears its ugly head amongst the community of the redeemed. But that's not how it's meant to be. The world will be stirred and challenged by our love. So the sense in which I guess I want to issue a, uh, a challenge to people is that we are challenged to love. It's hard. It's a difficult thing. But it's what we are to do as the redeemed people of God, as the people who have been born again, as people who are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, brothers and sisters of our beloved Jesus Christ. We are to love one another. And by way of encouragement, it points to a world that we can look forward to. We're not perfect. That's why the bits about forgiveness are there. But there's something we look forward to. And I'm always challenged by this passage. I've used it a few times in in, uh, sermons in the past, and I I find that it uh, just speaks to me every single time. So I hope it speaks to you also. But it's in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's what we are now. That's our present state. The reason why the world does not know us is that we did not know him. So as we align ourselves with Jesus, as we become more and more part of that redeemed community, and as we live in accordance with what Jesus has taught, we become less and less known or understood. We become more and more the enemies of the world. Not through our desire or preference, but because that's the way we are going to be uh, understood or misunderstood. Beloved, though, we are God's children now. It's just a fact. And what we will be, that will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is sometimes called the beatific vision. You know, when we see the blessed one. And that has such an impact upon us that our transformation is completed at that moment. As we enter into the very presence of God, we shall see him as he is. and We shall be like I'll conclude with this marvellous picture from Revelation 21 where John has this visionary experience. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. They term bride. This is a deeply relational term, a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Isn't that an encouragement to us? as we enter into his presence, as he comes to be our God, and we his people in a complete and final and, uh, way, 
when the former things are passed away, we shall be like him. And the way we live now is a, a smallest foreshadowing, smallest hint of what is to come. Let us live as the redeemed people of God so that those who are not yet among us will see that we love one another and be drawn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your way is the way of love, that the power of love will always trump the love of power. And Father, we anticipate with an expectation, a joy, what is to come. But we pray that by the power of your spirit, you might unite us in love as your redeemed people, as sons and daughters of the living God, as people who love one another, and that we might be uh, your witnesses in this place to your great love, that people might be drawn to Jesus. We do pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.